0: is it going
1: to this kind of you also
0: a <laughs> couple minutes.
2: I'm gonna break with tradition and uh, start at 8.03 Apple time just cause we have so many speakers and uh, we wanna get on with it. So um, first of all, uh, why am I standing up here? Dr. Salazar is in China. So I have the honor of uh, introducing uh, uh, Dr. Bill Zemsky today which I'm thrilled to do as a dear friend and colleague going back many years. So this is a special treat. Um, I was asked to keep it brief. It's very hard to do that with Bill but I'm gonna do my best. As many of you know, Dr. Bill Zemsky is one of our most unique faculty members. This is a guy who wears hot pink socks or often no socks at all. His office, if you've seen it, looks less post-modern and more (laughs) post-tsunami. Yet Bill never ceases to amaze me as one of the most productive people I know. Bill is nothing short of a pediatric renaissance man. He trained at Johns Hopkins for pediatric residency, then did a Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Pittsburgh, followed by an ED career, which gradually evolved into a keen interest in pediatric pain management. He is now a well-recognized national leader in the field of pediatric pain and is co-editor of the Definitive Oxford textbook on the subject. He is a recipient of uh, NIH grants and the Donahue Investigator Award. He has also, of course, built an outstanding division of pain and palliative care here at Connecticut Children's. Bill has capped it all off with a new and exciting honor, the Francine and Robert Goldfarb, William T. Zemsky Endowed Chair for Pain and Palliative Medicine. And the donors specifically wanted uh, Bill's name to appear on this uh, long-term endowed chair. So really an, an amazing honor, truly impressive. So keeping it brief, please help me welcome one of the most colorful, accomplished, and yes, unique guys. I know Dr. Bill
3: Zemski. That's much more than uh, that wasn't brief, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, so I have three folks to uh, introduce, and it, you know, uh, many all three of them are relatively new to our division. Um, and Rochelle DeMayo came to me probably about two years ago. Um, Rochelle, as many of you know, or most of you know, is our CMIO. I won't tell you what that stands for, because I'll probably get it wrong. But Rochelle came to me two years ago or so and said, I want to do headache. And I'm like, you want to do headache? And I'm like, and it just happened that I'd had a conversation with Karen Rubin about a week before that we need to do headache. And I said, oh, good, I have a job for you. So um, and it really emerged from there. And I will say Rochelle has done an amazing job. Um, I'm kind of glad I only work with her one day a week because otherwise she would exhaust me. Um, but uh, her enthusiasm, her energy, and she gets the most amazing reviews from her patients, which are not simple patients, as you can imagine. Um, but we've gotten... The reviews and evaluations of Rochelle's care are nothing short of amazing. So I've been thrilled to have her working with us. Um, The next person I'm going to introduce is Epen Matthew, who many of you, uh, a lot of you may not know, Epen works in our division a quarter of his time. So we have an arm and kind of a shoulder and probably half a chest or so. Um, And Epen is an anesthesiologist who did did his residency here um, and then went out to Cincinnati where they have an excellent pain program and did advanced training in pediatric anesthesia and pediatric pain. And he's actually our only uh, formally trained pediatric pain specialist. So he has a unique role in this division. And he has really stewarded and built our interventional pain program. We had no interventional pain program three years ago when Epen got here. And now we're doing, I don't know, 15 or 20 uh, interventional procedures per month. So he's really uh, elevated that program and he's a soft-spoken, uh, very gentle guy. Um, and uh, we love having him here and everybody gets excited on the one quarter time that epin is with us. Uh, and then Tim Levine is the newest, uh, well, no longer the newest addition to our division. He He held that title until actually relatively recently, but Tim started with us a year ago. Tim is a uh, psychologist. He uh, did his Ph.D. at University of Vermont um, and then a fellowship at Boston Children's. And uh, we were quite lucky that uh, he followed uh, his wife, Elise, here, because Elise came here for fellowship. And uh, we took advantage of that to uh, recruit uh, Tim here. Uh, and he uh, has really, he hadn't, not a lot of experience in headache, but he is. Uh, dove in headfirst, if you will, uh, into the headache field and has uh, really uh, helped us get the headache program started. And just so you know, our last week, although the patient didn't show up, uh, was our first Uh, headache clinic in Fairfield County. So we uh, now have uh, availability of our chronic headache program, which these guys are going to describe, uh, both in Hartford and now Fairfield County. And Tim uh, Tim is about to do the best thing he's ever uh, done, which he's going to become a father in a couple months. (laughs) um, And uh, we want to congratulate him for that as well. So uh, uh, I guess, Rochelle, are you going to start? So welcome, Rochelle.
0: morning, guys. It's really a pleasure to uh, to tell you a little bit about our headache program. I will try not to exhaust you. Um, and I, um, I'll turn it over to Tim, and then even we'll, we'll finish up, but feel free to, to ask questions. So oops, I was told not to press that button. All right. So I wanted to just start with uh, a brief overview of the epidemiology of headache, which is probably familiar to many of you, but I just thought I would highlight uh, a couple of things. Uh, those are the ones highlighted in red here, that headache disorders are common. Um, frequent and severe headache afflicts about 17% of US children and adolescents, so it's not a, a, an uncommon thing. Obviously, there's a little bit of a gender gap there. Um, more, more girls than boys have headache, but, but a significant portion of each. And headache increases uh, as children get older. So about 4% of four to six-year-olds, but 27% of 16 to 18-year-olds. Uh, the prevalence of pediatric migraines, so uh, a subset of the frequent or severe headaches, is overall uh, in children and adolescents about 7%, 7.7%, but that increases with age. So in the older kind of school-aged children, it's, it's as high as 10%. And headache is a frequent complaint in primary care, Uh, and consistently among the top reasons for subspecialty consultations. So it's usually in the top three reasons for neurology consultation, and then the top five reasons for ED visits. Headaches, unfortunately, are also notable for common care gaps. This data is actually drawn from adults. I've got to be honest with you, but um, in a national survey, Adults who endorsed symptoms that would, would fulfill criteria for, for a migraine, only 40 some odd percent of those adults had actually received a diagnosis of migraine. So I think we underdiagnose it. And um, a full 29% of people reported that they uh, were not satisfied with their acute care. So not that satisfaction is the only measure of, of uh, effective care, but certainly people aren't, aren't necessarily thrilled with the care that they're receiving. Headache, I think, as we all know, is a chronic condition. It usually starts out as an episodic condition, and um, the word that we use in headache medicine is that it transforms into chronic phenotypes. About 2 to 3% of those transform per year. There is persistence across the kind of um, developmental span. So uh, at a 10-year follow-up, 80% of adolescents who had migraine still have uh, migraine in adulthood. Um, obviously, 20% of them don't, but, but 80% do. And uh, and the same thing is true for tension-type headaches. About 50% of people continue to suffer from headaches uh, into adulthood. Um, I'm trying to get away from the word comorbidity, so I'm using co-occurrence. So the uh, headache does co-occur with a lot of other important chronic conditions such as obesity, anxiety, depression, ADHD, epilepsy, and cardiovascular disease. And headache is costly, uh, not only to the patients who experience headache. I mean, um, in our patient population, there's a lot of suffering at the individual and family level, but I think um, the impact to society really can't be underestimated. Um, It's associated with increased healthcare expenditures. It is, migraine is the top cause of years lost to disability among kind of like the productive uh, contributing members of society in the 15 to 14 year old age group. And uh, one in five individuals in their kind of peak employment years report severe headache or migraine. So um, it's, it's a condition I think that is, is worth a little, I mean, obviously, I think it's worth a little bit more investigation, but, um, but I'm hoping to persuade you to pay attention to the rest of the, the presentation. Um, so this is just a little bit more specific about headache here at Connecticut Children's, and this is meant to highlight that, um, and this is looking specifically at migraine patients, and um, across the bottom, hopefully you guys can read that small print there, these are where migraine patients actually seek care here in our, our medical center. That doesn't mean that they're seeking care for their migraines. I'm just saying there are migraine patients in neurology, clearly. Um, and this, this data represents the last almost complete year, uh, 10-1 of 2018 to 930 of 2019. So um, you can see there are a lot of patients with migraine in neurology, but there are also a lot of patients with migraine in GI, in cardiology, in endocrinology, and cardiology, and endocrinology, and obviously pain in primary care. Um, and then on the right-hand side, I just actually pulled some, some PDFs of, publications by our own um, faculty here. And you'll see that we've got folks in the ED, folks in neurology, folks in sports medicine who are all publishing on headaches. So I think the bottom line from this slide that I wanted to demonstrate to you guys is headache patients are seen all over the place. You guys see headache patients, even if you're not in the Department of Pain and Palliative Medicine. Um, And it's something that I think will impact the care you give no matter what, what, what your specialty is. So um, Bill mentioned that I came to him about two years ago and said, hey, I would really like to, to do some headache medicine. What do you think about that? Um, and as it was very serendipitous that Karen had also approached Bill. Um, so this, really, this slide is meant to recap for you that um, headache care at Connecticut Children's has undergone a little bit of an evolution. We, we have um, identified a kind of virtual pediatric headache center here at Connecticut Children's, and the core participants include not only pain, but the, the, our colleagues in neurology and sports medicine and psychology, and that we collaborate very closely with physical therapy, with integrative medicine, with psychiatry, and with sedation services. This graphic is shamelessly drawn from the um, American Headache Society's pediatric migraine, but um, I think it's kind of informative what, how kids describe what their headache is. Um, So we launched the pediatric headache clinic in pain and palliative medicine in October of 2018 when Kim joined our group. It's a multidisciplinary clinic. It's really intended for chronic and complex headache disorders. And the principal entry point uh, for our clinic is the referral from other specialties here, neurology, sports medicine, pediatric hospital medicine. We definitely do get some community referrals, uh, but, but the vast majority come from other subspecialists. And I, I want to be clear that um, I think our program complements some of the work that Karen has already done with CLASP and the the um, co-management guidelines and the referral guidelines. We aren't. We don't see patients when they've had a headache once or twice. We see patients who really have um, who've developed intractable headaches or refractory to treatment, or who have other significant co-occurring conditions. We're staffed by um, I would say everybody in all the physicians in pain see headache, but principally. I would say it's, um, it's myself, Epen, and Bill Zemsky, so three of us in, in, uh, in terms of physicians. We've got multiple pain psychologists. Um, we do have proceduralists. Actually, Epen's double counted here because he's one of the proceduralists and one of the physicians. Um, and, and our pain nurses really are integral to, to our care. So we offer medication and nutritional supplement management. We, um, we offer psychotherapy. We definitely do procedural interventions, and Epen will talk a little bit more about that. We, um, we prescribe neuromodulation. We are very involved in school reentry plans and, uh, and we coordinate care and refer patients to biofeedback, to physical therapy, to community behavioral health, acupuncture and other um, alternative and integrative therapies. So the goals of our pediatric headache treatment are, uh, first of all, to assign an appropriate diagnosis and we use not the ICD, the ICHD, so the International Classification of Headache Disorders, which is kind of like the headache bible, the the .3 beta version. Um, And we use that to identify primary and or secondary headaches. That kind of graphic in the middle shows you the four different types of primary headache disorders and then there are secondary headache disorders and neuropathies as well, uh, included in that classification guide. Obviously we wanna detect uh, dangerous or underlying secondary causes of headache. Um, we want to implement evidence under consensus-based best practices. I mean, we would obviously prefer to implement evidence-based best practices, but sometimes we need to rely on consensus-based best practices. We want to optimize the benefits to side effect ratio of our interventions and really respect patient perspectives. When we're dealing with patients with chronic condi- conditions and chronic pain, it's really important to incorporate them as part of the, the medical decision-making team. We want to identify and address behavioral health and lifestyle factors and social determinants of health. And ultimately, we want to decrease headache frequency, severity, and duration with an absolute goal of uh, having fewer than one to two headache days per week and a relative goal of being better than before. Um, conventionally, in the, in the headache field, we use a 50% reduction from where you are baseline. And we want to focus on improving the functional status of children with chronic pain. Um, this, this slide was really just meant to show you that if you look at the past fiscal year in yellow, we've seen about 300 patients um, in, our, in our pain program. Um, patients who have a diagnosis of headache throughout the medical center represent about 8,500. So we're seeing a small fraction of those patients and, and oftentimes some of the more complex uh, children. In terms of assessing our kind of success in launching this program, I think we just we are considering structural measures like how many providers we have, how many patients we're seeing, what our our qualifications and training are. Um, we we bring I think to the to the table some um, some specialized training uh, in pain psychology and procedural medicine. Um, there's a there's a certification that the United Consortium of Neurologic Specialties offers in headache medicine, which which I've uh, taken that exam, and that we have some procedures and protocols in place. We also look at process measures, and these actually are drawn, I mean, I'm not sure that these are the most uh, important process measures, but these are drawn specifically from the American Academy of Neurology's um, likely to be um, endorsed measures for, uh, quality measures for headache and for migraine. So migraine frequency being documented that we've counseled uh, families on lifestyle factors, and that we've prescribed preventive treatment when appropriate. And as I mentioned before, the outcome measures we're interested in include a decrease in headache frequency and severity and and, uh, disability. um, There are two validated measures that we rely on often. One is called the HIT-6, which stands for the Headache Impact Test, and one is called the PEDS-MIDAS, which is the pediatric version of a migraine disability. Questionnaire. So this represents our, our kind of ambulatory pathway. And I just wanted to emphasize that we have an interdisciplinary intake process. Uh, Tim and I, and our pain nurse, um, see almost every single new patient to our headache uh, center. And then, depending on what the diagnosis is and what the, the patient's um, kind of existing community based care supports are, I will see them. So that, that's the pain medicine um, box at the top, or, or Bill or EPIN. Um, we, We hook them up with our pain psychology team. Oftentimes, we refer them to interventions. Our pain nurses do a lot of care coordination. Many of our patients um, get referred to physical therapy and or other subspecialty services. Um, I generally see patients after intake at one month and then at two months, four months, six months, and nine months. Um, those who get referred to pain psychology generally have a short-term engagement, short-to-midterm engagement with our pain psychologist, and Tim's going to talk more about that, but he, he often sees them weekly for the first um, month and a half or so. And, uh, and as you can see there, we, do, we, we ask our patients to fill out lots of questionnaires. Certainly at intake, um, we assess their pain burden, their functional disability, um, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing this word, pediatric catastrophizing scale. We, uh, we ask both parents and patients to fill that out. Uh, we ask them to rate the, their pain on a numeric scale and to draw where their pain is. We assess for anxiety and depression. And then we follow up at each of our medical visits with this, um, either the HIT-6 or the, the Peds-MIDAS. So this is just to show you some of the evidence-based pediatric headache management guidelines that are out there, um, and also to highlight the, the gaps, essentially. So in the very bottom, in this very light gray, you can see that, that we've got still consensus uh, recommendations, especially for peripheral nerve blocks. There are no uh, like evidence-based guidelines for that. Ethan will talk a little bit more about that. And um, there is just a consensus statement that was released last September about new migraine treatments, which I'll talk about in a bit, um, there's not, there's not enough evidence out there, certainly in the pediatric population, uh, to, to guide that. But there are practice guidelines that talk about pediatric migraine prevention and um, acute treatment of pediatric migraine. In fact, these were just published in August, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and there are also um, neuroimaging guidelines. That's the ACR appropriateness criteria for when a child really um, should be explored with, with uh, head imaging. The, um, the headaches in over 12s—that's drawn actually from uh, from a UK set of guidelines—and the one in the middle, the nutraceuticals in migraine, um, doesn't pertain specifically to pediatrics. But we rely on on some of the adult um, information to guide our choices about nutraceuticals. So, um, I don't know if you if you are all familiar with the CHAMP study. It was a kind of seminal. Uh, study about pediatric migraine, childhood and adolescent migraine prevention. That's what CHAMP stands for. Um, it, it got a lot of press when the findings were first released. The study itself ran from 2012 to 2014. And, um, and the bottom line from that study was uh, there was a high placebo effect in the three different arms of the study. One, one, uh, one arm of patients received amitriptyline, one arm received topiramate. one arm received nothing. And Essentially, overall, close to 60% of patients in each of those arms improved, and that led the authors of the study, the principal investigators, to conclude that um, there is an unfavorable risk-benefit ratio for many of these preventive treatments, at least over the 24-week duration of the trial, and that uh, we couldn't necessarily apply the adult model of headache treatment to children. I want to make sure I acknowledge the study, but I also want to highlight for you that the patients who were excluded from the study are, in fact, the patients we see in our clinic. So um, patients who had continuous headache, who had medication overuse, who had coexisting anxiety or depression, who had extreme disability, had missed, you know, um, more than 20 days of school, those patients weren't in that study. So this is a helpful study, I think, for many of us to, to kind of uh, remind ourselves that we don't always need to prescribe medication for patients, but, uh, but it's not particularly relevant on the day-to-day basis for, for informing the patients that uh, I see and, and TIM sees and, and EPEN sees. Um, the challenges with evidence-based management for our patient population are that there, there certainly is a placebo effect, and potentially that can be leveraged actually as a therapeutic avenue. Most management, which I'll talk about a little bit later, is still off-label. There is one FDA-approved preventive medication for pediatric migraine. And there are a few high-quality trials in children and adolescents, uh, particularly when we talk about the newer therapies like neuromodulation, like the CGRP blocker medications. Um, and then um, there are important subpopulations of headache patients who, 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 you know, um, to whom the CHAMP study results are not generalizable. And I think I, I've covered that, so you guys... So this just is a summary. This, I mean, is more a summary to show you a couple of things. One, when we talk about what we can prescribe as a preventive therapy for uh, for headache, and um, and uh, really what we prescribe is just a small part of what we do for managing headache. But um, there are different categories of drugs. It's kind of like the kitchen junk drawer in a in a in a way. There are nutritional supplements, there are antihistamines, some antihistamines, there are antidepressants, some antidepressants, there are anti-epileptics, antihypertensives, um, the, there are neurotoxins. We we do actually do a lot of Botox in, in children, and CGRP blocker medications, which at this point um, th- these came to market last year. They're the kind of new exciting um, horizon in, in migraine treatment, but uh, they, aren't, they aren't usually covered by insurance for, for children under the age of 18. The, the items highlighted in purple are the ones that are addressed by the headache guidelines that were just released in, um, in August. And topiramate, as I mentioned before, it has the, the, those three asterisks because it is the only FDA-approved medication. So everything else really is an off-label kind of use. For, um, for headache prevention. The, the categories over there in pink with the lines through them are where we actually do often see patients on these medications, but the evidence base suggests that perhaps those are not particularly effective in, in migraine prevention. A child or an adolescent deserves preventive therapy when their headaches occur with sufficient frequency or severity to result in migraine-related disability. And typically, that is more than one or two headaches, headache days per week. Um, there's also, at least from the adult literature, um, an indication that individuals who experience more than six headache days a month are the ones who are more likely to go on to develop chronic headaches, that if we intervene to prevent frequent episodic headaches, we're actually um, preventing the development of chronic headaches. So that's, that's the rationale for preventive therapy, um, and these are, the, these are the things that we can leverage, and we have patients on, on many, if not all, of these therapies. In terms of rescue medications, so you know, preventive medications are to prevent you from having a headache, but when you actually develop a headache, um, what, what can we do? So NSAIDs are definitely um, a, a staple um, and they can bind with all our other therapies. By the time patients see us, um, they've, they've definitely bought over-the-counter medications and tried over-the-counter medications and frequently actually they're taking too many over-the-counter medications. But acetaminophen and simple NSAIDs really do Uh, remain a cornerstone of treatment. Obviously, we want to limit them to fewer than 15 days, 14 or fewer days per month, because uh, once you get to the 15, like every other day use, you're really actually creating a potential for worsening headache and rebound headache. Um, We sometimes combine NSAIDs with caffeine. Um, I put in DHE just to be comprehensive here, but really with the introduction of Triptans in the 1980s, I think I have one patient who came to me on DHE who's still on DHE. Um, we, we don't really use ergots that, that much anymore. Um, they, they started being used in the 1940s. They have significant cardiovascular contraindications, which is not as big a deal in pediatrics, but they have far more side effects than triptans, so uh, we, don't, we don't use them as much. The, um, the purple tryptans, sumatriptan, rizatriptan, zolmitriptan, and almotriptan are the ones that have, um, have been approved for use in uh, pediatric patients. Um, we sometimes do use the other ones that, that haven't been FDA approved in that in age that group. Uh, there is a very effective combination of sumatriptan and naproxen that's kind of co-packed together in a, in a pill. The brand name is Treximet. Um, it was FDA approved in 2008. It's a little bit expensive and not, not all insurance companies cover it. So we sometimes essentially achieve that same effect with, with a more modular approach of doing sumatriptan and naproxen separately. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that dopamine antagonists are also used, especially in people who don't respond to tryptans or can't tolerate tryptans, um, like um, compazine and, and regaline. I wanted to just mention some of the newer headache therapies. This is a really exciting time in headache medicine. I mean, that makes me sound like a bit of a geek, I guess, but, um, but, but truly it is. And that's actually why I came to talk to Bill at the time I did, because there was a lot going on. Um, so neuromodulation devices, um, which stimulate this, the nervous system centrally or peripherally with either an electric current or a magnetic field, that's kind of the, device, the devices overall, um, can essentially change the, the um, central experience of pain. Um, and there was a neuromodulation device approved earlier this year in April. It's called the e um, and we actually have some patients on it, and I, I will show it to you. There's another slide to show you a little bit more about that. As I mentioned, these um, CGRP um, medications, which you may have heard about, these are things like uh, Amavig, Amgality, Jovi. These came to market last year. There's one more that's about to come to market. Um, And and, um, CGRP is one of the most potent vasodilators in the the body and appears to play an important part in migraine mechanism. And in patients who respond, they often respond dramatically to these medications and they are well tolerated. But as I say, they're they're not yet covered usually for patients under 18. Uh, there's a newer class of molecules, the GPants, uh, that, that potentially will make it to market next year. Those include Remegipant and uh, Ubrogipant. Um, and actually that, that's the way that the CGR Uh, monoclonal antibodies were first kind of developed is GPANs proved effective, but uh, the the first generation of them induced hepatotoxicity. So they they explored a different way of getting at that same molecule. And then um, actually just a couple, a week ago, uh, on the 11th of October, a new class of medications, the ditans, lismiditan, was approved obviously for for adults. Um, So there's a lot of um, effort going on among both device Vendors and uh, device manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies because this is such a large patient population and the the disability and impact is so great in this patient population. This is the e-neuro device. Um, It's the only one approved in pediatrics. It looks kind of like a a bendy uh, uh, iPad. It's a little heavier than that and you can use it both for prevention you give yourself a couple pulses four pulses twice a day of magnetic stimulation you can also use it for um, for rescue and um, and we have about I think eight patients uh, who have used so this is just a recap of our headache center patients I just wanted to show you that um, as I pointed out you know the frequency of headache increases with age and in fact the number of patients we see um, is is higher in the older age group so we don't really see patients with headache um, at less than five years old. And we, we like the sweet spot for our clinic is, is the 15 to 18 year old age group. Um, we see many more females than males, although we do see a fair, fair number of, of boys. Um, their diagnoses, um, by far we have the most patients who end up uh, with a diagnosis of migraine, but we also have uh, folks with tension type headache, occipital neuralgia and other more complicated headaches and uh, syndromes. Uh, In terms of our co-occurring conditions, we see a lot of anxiety in this patient population. Um, Also some depression. Um, There are uh, problems with overweight and obesity. and um, and Not that asthma is necessarily related to headache, but we do obviously see a fair number of asthmatics, which can impact what our choice of preventive medications is. Uh, in terms of preventive therapies, this is just uh, pulling our data from the last year, and you can see we have a lot of patients on the tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline or nortriptyline. That's about 43% of our patient population, and this is actually ever use. So this isn't that, they are, that 43% is on amitriptyline or nortriptyline now. It's that they have tried amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Uh, we have um, about a quarter who have been on or are on to Pyramate. Uh, a smaller percentage on a beta blocker, propranolol, or calcium channel blocker. And we do use nutraceuticals uh, quite a lot, actually. Um, in terms of other treatments, we have, because we have some patients 18 and older, we've got 7% of our patients who use the CGRP blocker medications. Uh, I mentioned we have about 5% of them uh, using neuromodulation devices. Um, Epan's going to talk about the almost one in five uh, who end up seeing him <laughs> for interventional or procedural. Um, strategies. And Tim is about to talk to you about um, our psychological um, psychotherapy management. At, at this point, we take care of about 50% of our patients with our internal psychologists. There's a larger percentage that also have community-based providers. And, um, and as I mentioned before, we send a lot of patients to um, to biofeedback training, which is currently at this point performed mostly by our physical therapists, but also um, Occupational therapy here performs that. And then um, I think that's where I'm going to leave it off because I think Tim is going to talk to you about um, the psychology of headache, which is an incredibly important component. What I tell patients when we first meet them is um, what I am going to prescribe for you is just a small part of what what your headache management plan is and and arguably not even the most important part this is a very significant contributor to our, to our good patient outcomes. So Tim, come on up.
4: Morning, I'm uh, Tim Levine, pediatric psychologist, primarily based out of pain and palliative medicine. Um, want to thank Rochelle for going through the list of approved images and finding the patient who I think looks most like me of all of <laughs> the options that were there. So. Well done. Um, So here's just a quick overview of what I wanna cover today. Um, Primarily a discussion of the biopsychosocial formulation of headaches, um, the evidence for psychology informed headache treatment and what those interventions actually look like. So the biopsychosocial model um, was developed in 1977 to expand on the existing biomedical model um, and really provide a more comprehensive understanding of disease. Uh, The crux of it is, well, let's add psychology and social um, factors into our understanding of what's going on for patients. Uh, These things can serve as headache triggers, can impact the perceived severity of pain, the impact of functioning or lack thereof, and even treatment prognosis. Um, So the biopsychosocial model has been used to understand general health and disease uh, beyond just psychiatry and psychology. And three decades after it was created, um, this paper in 2007 took it and formally moved it towards headaches. Um, It's about headache patients in general, but it still very much applies to our pediatric populations. Uh, We know that multiple brain regions process different aspects of a pain message. Many of those are also involved with psychological processes like attention, stress, and emotion, And we all know the example of a brief stressful experience leading to the onset of a headache and chronic changes through neuroplasticity might influence the frequency of headaches. I'm going to hold off on the psychology little bubble there because that's the whole rest of this presentation. Um, But regarding the social factors, um, clearly you can see there's just a few of the many possible relevant factors that are at play for our patients. Um, It's... Quite easy to see, though, how any of those factors, think about something like school, could easily be connected to psychological distress. So one of the core components of the psychology aspect of this biopsychosocial model is cognitions. Thoughts, beliefs, attributions, and attitudes that are present for anyone in any given situation. Two aspects of cognition that are key for headache patients are locus of control and self-efficacy. So locus of control uh, refers to the belief that an event is under your own control. It exists on a spectrum from internal to external. Someone with an internal locus control thinks that an event is completely under his or her control, whereas someone with an external believes the event is completely outside of their control. In terms of headaches, a higher internal locus of control is associated with better headache treatment outcome and less headache disability Lower internal locus of control, on the other hand, is associated with less management of headache triggers, less engagement in behaviors that reduce or eliminate that headache pain, like taking medications as prescribed, and less minimization of headache-related disability. Patients who believe that headaches are mainly due to external factors, um, pardon me, are at at a higher chance of um, being depressed, experience more headache-related disability, and are really less likely to use adaptive coping strategies. And patients who believe that their healthcare providers are the main influence on headaches report higher levels of medication use, therefore being at greater risk of a medication overuse headache. Self-efficacy is a construct which has been identified as a predictor of treatment response and is correlated with changes in headache frequency, right? And it's the belief that you can execute a course of action to achieve a desired result. High self-efficacy moderates the influence of perceived stress on headache frequency. Low on the other hand um, is associated with coping with a stressor increased with autonomic arousal. That in turn could lead to someone being more susceptible to having a headache and self-efficacy on its own might actually be a predictor of headache-related disability. So if you take both of those things together, it really represents how likely someone is to avoid situations that lead to a headache adhere to their medications and engage in behaviors that reduce headache-related disability, all of which are primary targets for psychology. I also have to call out Rochelle again, who did not know who these characters were. Um, So for anyone else, these are the characters from Inside Out, and honestly, this movie was every psychologist's dream. It was made for kids. And it explains why emotions are important in everything you do in life. So preach to the choir, Pixar. Thank you. Um, when we talk about headaches, um, <clears throat> pardon me, what might happen is someone can, you know, think about you have anxiety, you have depression, you have anger. Pain is obviously an aversive experience. And thus it's associated with this trio of negative emotions. They've been shown to influence the likelihood that someone might have a headache Um, the intensity of the pain, and the associated disability. They're also associated with neural and physiological activation that might influence the onset or exacerbation of headaches. Um, As the um, previous slides uh, showed, anxiety is one of the most common um, comorbid headache um, disorders, but it is also one of the most common headache triggers. So heightened anxiety is associated with worse pain intensity, greater disability, poorer quality of life, increased cost of care whereas lower anxiety is associated with fewer headaches over time. Anxiety sensitivity though is really the core issue here. Patients who are high in anxiety sensitivity react with fear to symptoms of anxiety or otherwise unusual bodily sensations. The classic example is a panic attack, right? Someone who's very sensitive to the sensations um, of you know, possibly their, their body or their emotions might misinterpret a pounding heart as an actual heart attack leading to sympathetic activation, leading to a further increased heart rate and therefore more catastrophic beliefs about that heart failing and so on in the vicious cycle until they have an actual um, panic attack. Regarding headaches, this might might look like someone misinterpreting the initial sensations as the beginning of a headache, leading them to leave whatever situation they're in and avoiding that situation in the future. Those initial symptoms could also provoke fear or anxiety that activate then the sympathetic nervous system lead to actual physiological changes like increased muscle tension and heart and respiration rate, which may in turn intensify that headache pain. Thinking of more dysphoric feelings like depression, sadness, despair, emptiness, um, higher levels of these are um, associated with stress potentially triggering a headache, increased pain severity, and related disability. They're also associated with a worse response to treatment and negatively influence a patient's level of satisfaction with their own care. And then we think about anger. Uh, most importantly for headache patients, the issue is how they experience hang- anger. Anger in or anger out. Anger in is the experience of internal arousal. Anger out is when someone engages in a physical act like slamming a door or making a sarcastic remark. People with frequent headaches are more likely to hold their anger in, which can be associated with increased pain sensitivity and uh, more disability. On the flip side though, extreme anger out is also um, associated with increased pain sensitivity and disability and it is simply just not socially acceptable. Um, So in the end, too much expression or too much inhibition are both no good. Takeaway here is aspects of psychology are clearly linked to the experience of a headache. One of the core recommendations by Nicholson and colleagues is for providers to normalize the role that thoughts and emotions play in the experience of pain, which might help our patients understand whether they're actually getting referred for psychology treatment for a medical condition. So let's look at what that treatment is. Cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, um, is an evidence-based treatment for a number of issues, including headaches. The theory behind CBT is displayed here with a cognitive triangle. Simply, in any situation, our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors connect with each other. When I explain this to patients, I sometimes cheat by saying, all right, let's imagine the situation is you're going to bed after watching a scary movie. You're feeling, this is where the cheat happens, scared. You're thinking there's a monster under my bed, leads to you running to mom or dad's room. They come and they look under the bed. You realize, oh, there's actually not a monster under my bed. Back down to feelings, you're feeling much more comfortable, and you're not able to sleep great for something like anxiety, but in the world of pain, we actually split that word feelings into both emotions and physical sensations. Both things you feel, but obviously different. So based on this understanding, CBT for headaches involves the teaching of a variety of different headache coping skills. Distraction or pleasant activities, which is also associated with the endorphin release. Relaxation, three big ones, which we always cover, diaphragmatic breathing, Progressive muscle relaxation and guided imagery. Sleep hygiene, which at the uh, Society of Pediatric Psychology this past year, almost half the posters were on sleep because of the huge role that it plays in pain experience. Activity pacing, just breaking down activities into smaller, more digestible pieces. Cognitive distortions or thinking traps and cognitive restructuring or detective thinking. I'll touch on these cognitive techniques a bit more in just a moment. And biofeedback. The end result is that kids develop a coping toolbox, right? The idea is they can pick and choose any skill which is just perfect for a given situation. So there's a large and still growing body of evidence to support the use of CBT for headaches. Notably, all of this data is for the pediatric population. Um, The CBT plus amitriptyline study um, was one of the only psychology-based studies included in the September 2019 guidelines that Rochelle already mentioned. All participants received amitriptyline um, and attended eight weekly sessions plus two boosters with a therapist, half the participants engaged in CBT, and half did headache education. The group which received CBT had better outcomes for both headache frequency and functional disability, and the improvements even held at a one-year follow-up. On the other side here we have CBT alone. These results aren't about a single study, it's a combination of several different ones, but the take home point is there's substantial evidence demonstrating the effectiveness of psychological interventions, primarily CBT, but also some benefit for relaxation or biofeedback alone. So I want to touch just a little bit on some of The cognitive aspects, I I imagine that many of us are more familiar with things like relaxation, pleasant activities, scheduling, but this is kind of um, one of the core pieces of CBT that psychology can really add in. Cognitive restructuring, or the term that I use more often, detective thinking. But if you look for it in an academic textbook, look for cognitive restructuring. The idea is helping the patient to recognize that thoughts are just guesses, right, not facts, and therefore don't have to dictate their emotions or actions. Patients can really get stuck in unhelpful ways of thinking that might lead to tough emotions or hinder their engagement in activities. By examining all the evidence in a situation, not just the tough parts, the idea is a patient can rewrite initial worried or anxious or pain-related thoughts based on evidence. So what I'm going to do is walk through an example, um, a slightly modified example of from one of our actual patients. So this was uh, in the morning before school, patient was feeling worried, rated as a seven out of 10, thinking I can't go to school today because I'll get a migraine. This is a classic example of one of those um, cognitive distortions or thinking traps, all or nothing thinking, maybe even ignoring the positive, right? just assuming A, I'm going to have a migraine and B, that means I can't go to school. What we did together was we said, well, what's the actual evidence for those two pieces? They said, yeah, I had a migraine yesterday, and well, it's hard to pay attention in class when I have a migraine. But what they hadn't done was thought about all of the evidence to not support that initial thought, right? Thinking, I can't guarantee I have a migraine, I have a 504 plan, I can use caffeine, and I have a bunch of different coping tools. You can tell that I've already done some work. That's why they already knew they had those coping tools. the end result is say, all right, well, let's be a detective, right? Think about every detective movie you've ever seen where they have that wall of images with a string connecting to it and say, do that here, right? Boil down these pieces of evidence and come up with your own more rational coping thought. And this patient was able to say, well, there's no guarantee that I'll have a migraine today. Even if I do, I know some ways to deal with it. And they brought that feeling of anxiety down to a three out of 10. And flash forward to the future. This patient actually ended up going back to school almost full-time, whereas they'd been on um, an online program for up to a year beforehand. So in combination with many other things can be a really effective strategy. I also wanna highlight the importance of parents, right? So we do a lot of our sessions individually, but parents always join at the end and sometimes they have their own session. Um, They can be the therapist's partner in helping the kid to practice skills at home while still encouraging independent um, management of headache pain. And they can also help encourage as much functional activity as possible, and this is what we're seeing here. One of our most useful tools is a behavior plan which provides incentives, like screen time perhaps, for successfully meeting daily or weekly goals. So if we have a patient who's struggling to go to school, we might build in a plan like this. A gradual plan, they're starting at two days, then a few weeks at three days, then four, and they can earn daily and weekly rewards. The um, idea of keeping in daily rewards, not just the weekly, is, well, if your goal is to hit three days and you haven't gone Monday through Wednesday, there's no way you could get to three. So you need to have a balance there. Um, This is one of my favorite interventions because it's really fun to see what kids actually pick as their rewards. And the key is rewards need to be small, yet reinforcing, cheaper, free, and otherwise unobtainable for the patient. Here we have a picture of biofeedback. Um, It's a fantastic adjunct to CBT, currently um, being performed by our physical therapy colleagues, but very soon we'll be offering it as a psychology intervention itself. It's a technique in which patients are taught to become aware of a number of different bodily sensations like respiration rate, blood pressure, muscle tension, body temperature, and then learn to use a variety of cognitive behavioral strategies to uh, modulate those functions. Um, Three of the primary ones are what we already mentioned, diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, and guided imagery. A variety of sensors gather and then present the information in a visual or auditory manner. So you can see this kid who, full disclosure, I think is doing neurofeedback, um, but it's a close cousin of biofeedback, and those sensors on his head are connected to the screens right in front of him. Uh, Think about it as a patient-friendly vitals monitor. The data is presented in a continuous, non-invasive, clear, and understandable manner, which means it's perfect for turning into a video game. So if you look at the girl on the right here, she could be using um, those uh, EMG connections on her forehead to control a racing carb and manipulating the muscle tension on her forehead. You can think about a patient who might be experiencing excessive sympathetic nervous system arousal, which would then lead to increased pain or anxiety. Biofeedback allows them to actually see the physiological processes happening in real time and then learn strategies to directly influence those responses. Here's an example of why it's not really hard to get buy-in from the patients to use this. Um, no surprise, this is absolutely not headache-specific or even evidence-based. Um, I found this online. It's a do-it-yourself biofeedback kit. Um, all it, all I, the reason I included it though, right, is it just shows that this tool can be turned into a treatment component that our patients actually want to use. The example here is He's not actually hooked up to anything, but I imagine if he's putting um, sensors on his arms, he's able to control the different um, traditional Nintendo controls there. Finally, just wanna touch on many of the additional evidence-based psychological interventions. VR is an evolving intervention for patients with chronic pain and many of the available options help to introduce relaxation strategies um, in a patient-friendly package. So here we have a screenshot from one of the VR apps that we use. Um, This little panda teaches you to use deep breathing in a really relaxing setting. It's kind of a combo between guided imagery and deep breathing. WebMap is an evidence-based CBT app for adolescents with chronic pain, helping to get high-quality treatment to patients who might not have it otherwise easily accessible. And Comfortability and Migraine Camp are both one-day programs for adolescents and their families who have pain. The comfortability is offered right here. We do it about every two to three months, and that's for any patient with chronic pain. Migraine camp, obviously, is a bit more migraine-specific. The main takeaway from this slide is that pain and headache-focused CBT needs to be accessible to patients, many of whom who do not, do not have actual adequate treatment options nearby. By developing these alternative forms of delivery from mobile to one-day programs, our goal is really to help more patients just get this core piece of treatment that can help their headaches. Thanks. I'll toss it over to Ethan.:
1: We have developed the interventional program over the last few years, and it's um, really blossomed over time. but in particular, as far as the headache aspects of our interventional program, uh, Rochelle has been a tremendous advocate for. Um, recognizing patients of ours who will benefit from these procedures and uh, and routing them our way in growing um, the headache program as well. We're gonna go over how Rochelle and how you also in your clinics can select appropriate patients to um, visit uh, us for injection therapy and how to order for an EPIC Uh, and the role that our sedation center has in these, um, uh, in taking care of these patients, the techniques we use side effects they have and how our patients are doing. As far as selecting the patients, uh, a great many of our our headache patients at this institution are candidates uh, or good candidates for injection therapy. Uh, When we look at uh, chronic migraine patients, uh, many of them are, but in particular, those who have a high degree of disability uh, and who have symptoms for more than 15 days a month lasting over six months. This means that injection therapy is a good option to be used as a preventive um, uh, option. They should also have failed uh, two or more classes of other preventive medications to be candidates for Botox injections. Uh, Chronic migraine doesn't uh, dictate that they should only receive Botox. They could also be candidates for occipital nerve blocks. Occipital neuralgia is far less common uh, but still not uncommon in the patients that we see. And many of them have some sort of physical trauma history, whether it's a sports injury or even falling um, backward and hitting their head uh, on the floor. We often hear these things, but sometimes these uh, occipital neuralgia can occur without that sort of history uh, as well. And lastly, chronic daily headache in and of itself can be a reason to trial Uh, interventional procedures. There are a few relative contraindications like coagulopathy or severe platelet dysfunction, neuromuscular disease, infection at the site of injection and local anesthetic allergy. If you are to place a referral uh, in EPIC, you can simply uh, search for the ambulatory ambulatory referral to your interventional pain order and then uh, go through the simple order form We do other injections, so of course, uh, if you're seeing a headache patient, indicates that uh, in the middle of the screen, as you can see, there's a checkbox for headaches and fill in the other fields, which again, go back to some of the indications that we described initially, uh, such as whether they've been having migraines for six months or longer, headaches uh, for 15 days or more per month, and the medications that they have tried and had an inadequate response to. When we uh, do Botox injections, um, I have listed some of the equipment we use, not so much because I expect you to stock them in your clinics or because you need a comprehensive list, but really just to illustrate that they're very simple to do. Uh, and so therefore they uh, should be a reasonable treatment to offer our patients. The injectate is simply saline and Botox, which is kept in our pharmacy um, under refrigerated conditions. And to go over the mechanism of action, uh, the toxin is brought into the neuron uh, through the heavy chain of um, uh, of the uh, SNAP complex, and uh, is then it's brought in through receptor-mediated endocytosis, uh, and eventually the vacuole uh, acidifies and it's then released, then cleaving other key proteins which prevent acetylcholine from um, uh, being released at the nerve terminal causing weakness and paralysis. Uh, these are the injection sites that we typically use for Botox and you see it, it goes pretty much all of the way around the scalp and into the trapezii. Uh, you can imagine for uh, many kids, this can be sort of a terrifying uh, prospect. And so uh, without sedation, uh, it's, uh, it can be almost prohibitive Uh, but we get them through it. And uh, while they are a number of sites, we use uh, an exceedingly small needle. We use typically 25 or 27 gauge needles um, and inject small quantities of these medications, which are evident uh, for maybe an hour or so afterward, but uh, the injectate diffuses quickly and it wouldn't be evident later on in the day. Uh, There are uh, a few small studies of Botox. There isn't any overwhelmingly large study, uh, but this is the most recent one, and I think probably the best one. Uh, it involved about 10 patients, uh, mostly um, who had a fair amount of uh, pain and disability, and they had a varying number of treatments. Um, but uh, when we look at their outcomes, uh, it shows. Uh, uh, improvement in the frequency of migraines that they have uh, to quite a significant degree. Uh, pre-treatment versus post-treatment uh, decreased from about 15 to 4, which is actually significantly more than in the adult studies that we've seen and were kind of the backbone of getting these uh, treatments FDA approved. And In addition, the intensity of headache also decreased um, to a statistically significant degree. Uh, and above all, they also were functioning better and had significantly better um, disability scores. Uh, and you can see here uh, box plots of the frequency, duration, and intensity of their symptoms improving. Even prior to this, there was a study from Cincinnati Children's extending from 2004 to 2010. And the timing is relevant because uh, Botox wasn't FDA approved even in adults until 2010. And I wanna touch on that study briefly uh, because it involved about 40 patients. And of course it was all retrospective, Um, but all of those patients uh, in addition to these underwent the injections without any sort of sedation and that can be almost prohibitive um, uh, because they would often have to do sort of test injections uh, of a small number of spots in lieu of the 31 to assess who were actually uh, going to tolerate all the injections. But in any case, in that study as well, there was a significant improvement in the disability that these patients experience. Let's move on to occipital nerve blocks. Uh, at this institution, we typically block both the greater and lesser occipital nerve. So that means uh, on uh, each side, there would be two injections and most of our patients end up having bilateral injections. And again, occipital neuralgia uh, is an indication for this, and we do have some patients who have occipital neuralgia, but in addition, it's also a good treatment for chronic migraines. Uh, and, uh, and the greater occipital nerve, it's a medial branch of the C2 nerve, and anatomically, it's, uh, at the base of the skull, it um, can be found medial to, to the artery, and the lat- uh, lesser occipital nerve, is closer to the mastoid process along the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid path, superiorly. For these uh, injections, we typically just use local anesthetic. There are some studies that explore whether steroid uh, prolongs the duration of the block or improves outcomes, and um, there isn't uh, overwhelming evidence to show that it does. So to avoid some of the side effects of the steroids, many people, including us at this institution, um, simply use local anesthetic to do it. And, uh, and again, it's a very simple uh, technique and doesn't require a lot of equipment. Uh, some institutions will use imaging like ultrasound to find the artery and use that as a landmark to uh, inject at the nerve. But this has also been studied and it turns out uh, doing that doesn't really make a difference in outcomes. Um, you might wonder how, uh, how doing an occipital nerve block could help with migraines, and that is being explored uh, quite a bit. Um, and uh, so uh, the, the primary thought is just that um, it's central modulation, and, uh, and there may be some degree of placebo as well. Uh, we do have to acknowledge the sedation center, the center of procedural excellence for making a lot of these possible. Like I said, in the two previous studies that I described, there really um, was a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of patients who didn't qualify for it simply because of needle phobia. And in our patient population, and there is a lot of that in addition to amplified um, pain symptoms. So uh, they're really instrumental to us providing this care to uh, a lot of patients who otherwise, uh, in whom it wouldn't otherwise be possible. And they offer um, you know, a variety of sedation services that they can tailor to the individual patients is really quite important. Uh, we have over time, looking back to a year uh, ago, um, amplified the uh, number of injections that we've done, the patients we've taken care of. So we are continuing to grow and as we expand to Fairfield, uh, expect that to grow as well. Um, and, uh, and most of our patients are repeat patients. About um, two thirds to three quarters of our patients end up coming back because they uh, notice that they are uh, feeling better and uh, significantly improving. So, uh, just as one anecdote, a uh, patient told me last week that um, her summer was pretty good. She was only in the ER twice. Um, and compared to last summer where she spent the whole summer kind of miserable, not doing any of the things that she wanted to do and was constantly in and out of the hospital. So next steps, we should um, track our data, uh, looking at symptoms, disability, and so on, uh, as we uh, look to build on the literature that exists now. Uh, And I'd like to thank uh, our team. Um, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Kendra for helping uh, build this and making it a smooth, Comprehensive process to schedule our patients. Uh, to Kim Harris Eaton, Laura Miele, and uh, Melissa Jenkins for being on the phone and um, uh, helping us uh, build this process as well. And uh, everyone in sedation, uh, including Luthi Vasquez, also who uh, helped with all of that. Uh,
2: so that's it. Thank you for that outstanding. Uh collection of talks, and I think for the sake of time, if you have questions, please go up and talk to the speaker. Thank you. you.
1: I not you Oh great. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, just now